0: Second Chronicles chapter nine is where we're gonna go. So before we jump into the scripture this morning, I wanna just give you a little bit of vision about what the next couple of months in our church family are gonna look like. And so starting today for the next three weeks, we're gonna be in a short three-week series called Seek First, where we're gonna be talking very practically about what it looks like to prepare our hearts for an encounter with God this year. I don't know if you've spent much time in the scriptures, but you'll see this theme over and over, especially in the Old Testament, that, uh, that so often before God would encounter the people in fresh ways, he'd say, prepare yourself for the encounter, consecrate yourself before the Lord, because the Lord wants to do something great, but you've got to prepare for it. I remember one time, a friend and mentor of mine, he said, Dave, if you spend as much time preparing your heart to encounter God on a Sunday morning as you spend time getting dressed for Sunday morning worship, you know, believe it or not, I actually tried this morning to look good. He said, if, if you spend as much time, preparing your heart as you did your body. Can you imagine what God would do in your midst? And so January is going to be a, a month of preparation for us. We're, we're, we're really individually, you know, we're a community, but we're made up of individuals. We're, we're just going to say, God, hey, would you, would you prepare the soil of our hearts for the encounter that you would love to have with us this year? And so that'll be the next three weeks. And then we get, we're gonna get to the end of January We're going to spend the month of February doing what we did last year. We're going to take 30 days, and we're going to seek the Lord as a church in prayer and fasting uh, uh, for our church, for our city, for our marriages, for the nation. It's going to be a little different than we did last year. Last year, if you were here, we got all of our churches in the city together. We were all in one place for four straight weeks. Um, This year, we're going to be at our normal times and locations uh, during that time because we don't just want to build intimacy with God. We want to build intimacy with the people that we see every week. And it's over the month of February, we're gonna enter into 30 days of prayer and fasting. We're gonna tell you more about that. We'll give you resources to help you do it. But I I believe that the encounter that God has in store for you is one that can be only handled on the backside of preparation. And so for the next couple of weeks, we wanna spend some time preparing as we think about what it means uh, to seek first. I don't know if you have any routines or habits in your life as you come to the end of a year and to the beginning of another year for about the last 10 years or so I've had this, this rhythm where I take the week between Christmas and New Year's and I reflect back on what God did and, and what I did and how the year was and it's so normally just kind of this informal time of going back through my prayer journals and reflecting. and uh, I don't know what year 2017 was like for you, uh, but for me, it was kind of a complicated year. You know, the, the culture and our country, it was kind of a weird year for our culture. But for me personally, there's some really great things that happened. And I was reflecting back on that over the last week or so. But one of the things that I noticed that was kind of peculiar and unusual for me, as I looked back on 2017, is there were a lot of really good things that I started well, but finished poorly. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I was looking back over my journal, I'm like, man, there's that great habit. There's that great idea. There was that, that great thing that I started walking into. And I, I started realizing just how much easier it is to start well than to finish well. It's so maybe what some of you experience with your New Year's resolutions We're like on day seven of the year and you're charging hard, but your gym is counting on you to taper off in the month of February. <laughs> Why? Because it's easier to start than it is to finish, Right? Or maybe, maybe for some of you, it's a do-it-yourself project around the house. You watch just one too many episodes of Fixer Upper. And you go, man, I can redo my bathroom. And you get 10 seconds into it, and you realize that you are not Joanna Gaines. No matter how hard you try, it's easier to start than it is to what? Come on, to finish. Or how many of you have started a blog, and you blogged exactly two times? The internet is full of people that are able to start and not finish. But isn't this true that that life rewards, not those that start well, but those that what? Finish well. And this is certainly true in the kingdom of God. Matthew 24, Jesus makes a profound statement. He says the joy of salvation is discovered not by the person that starts the journey of faith, but by the person that endures faithfully to the end. I mean, it's easy to start the journey with Jesus, isn't it? In that moment of emotion, to, to raise your hand, to pray that prayer, to get in the water, to be baptized, to take that step, to volunteer, to join the house church, to lean into that ministry. But the deeper joys of the kingdom of God are reserved not for the starters, but for the finishers. And this is what I want us to think about as we come into the new as so We find ourselves standing at a new starting line. What would happen if we began this year at this new starting line with the finish line in mind. I'm not talking about the end of 2018, but just imagining what it is that we want the end of our lives to be like. And say, hey God, would you help me start in such a way that you yourself can help me finish. When I was going up, my dad used to always say this to me, and say, Dave, a wise man is the man that learns from the foolish man's mistakes. In other words, my dad would always say, If you want to be wise, learn from your own failures. If you want to be really wise, learn from somebody else's. I'm convinced my dad stole that way of thinking from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he was looking back over the Old Testament story, and he says, listen, every struggle and every success that took place in the life of God's people is something that has been written down so that we can learn from it, so we can gain wisdom from it. This morning, I want us to take a glimpse into a life of a guy named Rehoboam. I don't know if you know him or his story, but he's a guy that started his journey exceedingly well, and he finished it exceedingly poorly. If you know anything about the scriptures, so often this really complex and complicated guy is just relegated to the list of people that blew it with the one life that he had. But I want you to see that his story Didn't have to be that way. And just like every one of us, we find ourselves at these crossroads, these moments where we get to decide which path will we take. If you're not familiar uh, with the story leading up to this, I'll give you just kind of the cliff notes so we can track along together. So much of the first half of the Bible is the story of a God who in his grace pursues this group of people called the Israelites. It says that he blesses them he loves them so that they can bless and show the whole world how good God is. So the whole Old Testament is about God blessing this one group so they can bless all other groups. It's what the church is here for. But there's this moment where the Israelites realize, hey, God, we know you're our leader. We know you're our king. But we want our lives to be more like the lives of our friends and our neighbors. So they come to God and say, God, would you give us a king? Just like all the other nations have. And God, like a loving father, he comes to them and says, hey, listen, let me tell you how this is going to go. Like if anybody else rules over you, it's gonna go really, really poorly. But they keep begging, they keep asking. And God, like a good parent, he does what good parents do. There's those moments where he says, well, I'll let you feel the weight of your foolishness. So he gives them what they ask for. And the first few generations, things go pretty well. Saul, even though he's a mixed bag, he still led the country kind of into the ways of God. David, although he was filled with all sorts of brokenness and pain in his own life, kept seeking and chasing after the Lord. And Solomon, one of the wisest guys to ever live, had a, had a real interesting personal life, but was used by God in remarkable ways to bring about the kingdom. But there's this turn as Solomon's coming of his life, civil war's getting ready to break out. The country is beginning to go wayward spiritually. This guy named Rehoboam is, is born to Solomon and he's going to have the, the choice of not just how he's gonna start, but how he's going to finish. And although he's complicated and complex, I want you to see the way his journey begun. If you have a Bible, 2 Chronicles chapter 9, we're starting verse 31 together. This is the word of the Lord. It'll be up on the screen as well. It says, Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all of Israel for 40 years, and then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, succeeded Solomon as king. So here's what I want you to see. This is This guy, Rehoboam, he was born in this place of unbelievable privilege. I mean, just imagine this for a second. His father was Solomon, one of the wisest guys to ever live. You know, the scriptures tell us that leaders and thinkers and philosophers from all over the world would come to sit at Solomon's feet, to come to sit at his banquet table and to talk about the things of the day. Can you imagine, like growing up in your home, your dad Solomon, and all the great leaders and thinkers of the world show up at your table? It's like you have a TED Talk in your living room every single night. I mean, just all the wisdom of the day, wise beyond belief, influence beyond belief. He wasn't just wise, but he was rich, and we all wanna be rich, are we kidding, you know? One of the richest guys to ever live. We're told that Solomon would, would bring exotic animals in from all over the world. He had his own zoo, you know. Your pet is a golden doodle that you bought on Craigslist. Rehoboam had a lion, like that was, that was his pet, he had a zoo. I mean, just think about this, his, his whole life. His grandfather was David, like V. David. Think about the spiritual heritage of his family. In every way, this guy was born into a place of privilege, financial privilege, spiritual privilege, emotional privilege, educational privilege. He was born on third base with a leadoff and the best player at the blade to bat. He was set up to start really, really well. We're told in verse 31 that when his father dies, he becomes king not because he won the political vote, not because he had to take down some great dictator. He was born into a place of influence simply because he was alive. His journey started really well. This complex guy that was overcome with pride and with arrogance who would malign almost everyone in the kingdom. It's not where he started. Flip over in your Bibles to chapter 11, verse one. This guy who starts well, he comes in this place of power as the country is on the verge of civil war. And I want you to see the way that his heart is postured towards God in the beginning of the story. <laughs> Excuse me, it says, when Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered Judah and Benjamin, that'd be like saying he mustered two states in the south, 180,000 abled young men to go to war against Israel and to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all of Israel and Judah and Benjamin. This is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your fellow Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the words of the Lord, and they turned back from marching against Jeroboam. So I want you to see this. He's coming to this place of power. He's been born in this place of privilege. All of a sudden, this country that he's inherited is on the verge of civil war because of his pride and his arrogance. And like so many leaders, he decides the way that I'll bring about peace is through war. It's kind of a crazy way of thinking we still follow into that as human beings, right? And so he musters 180,000 soldiers. Hey, let's, let's go into this. And God sends a prophet to him. And the prophet says, that's your plan, but it's not God's will. And I want you to notice this at the beginning of his journey. This man who was born into this place of privilege has a heart that is still sensitive to the ways of God. God speaks and he listens. Can you imagine how much humility this took? It's kind of first act as king. He's got all these people together. He's cast the vision. They're ready to charge. He says, no, listen, God is redirecting our steps. He's born in privilege. His heart was sensitive to God. You keep going in the story and you realize in the early years of his reign, all of his military and economic and political strategies were unbelievably successful. Look at verse five. It says, Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem and he built up the towns for defense in Judah, in Bethlehem, in Edom, in Tekoa, in beth Zoko. These are all names of cities. You know that I can read, right? So I'm not gonna keep reading these weird names. Jump down to verse 11. It says, he strengthened their defenses and he put commanders in charge of them with supplies of food, olive oil and wine. He put shields and spears in all the cities and he made them very strong so that Judah and Benjamin were his. This man that was born in a place of privilege whose heart was sensitive to God experiences this season of unprecedented success. All his military and political uh, decisions. his economic decisions were flourishing. In fact, kind of the party line that would scroll across the bottom of CNN during those days is everything is getting stronger. He started well. Place of privilege, sensitive to God, successful in all that he did. You keep going in the midst of this, he's gonna find himself in the midst of spiritual revival and influence. I've never noticed this before this week. Look at verse 13 says, the priests and the Levites from all the districts throughout Israel, they sided with Rehoboam. The Levites even abandoned their pasture lands and their property, and they came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them as priests. Jump down to verse 16. And those from every tribe of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord, the God of Israel, followed the Levites to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, for three years, following all the ways of David and Solomon during their time. And so this man who was born into this place of privilege, who was sensitive to the voice of God, who was successful in all that he does, finds himself in this season of spiritual renewal. The priest from the opposing side that they're in civil war with, they leave their pasture lands, their properties. They say, hey, we wanna come be with you, Rehoboam. Says all the men and women in the land that were seeking God wholeheartedly came and aligned themselves with Rehoboam, and for three years the country prospered. I don't know if you know much of a story, but I'd never seen this part of Rehoboam's journey before. That although he was a complicated guy, filled with pride and arrogance in his early years, this place of privilege, in spiritual sensitivity and military success, and spiritual revival marked the journey that he was on. But you get to chapter 12, verse one. Look at chapter 12, verse one with me. There's this turning point. There's this decisive moment. It says, after Rehoboam's position as king, listen, was established. And after he became strong, he and all of Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. After he was established, and he became strong, he and all of Israel abandoned the Lord. Have you ever noticed that your moments of success very rarely push you towards intimacy with the Lord? Because in your moments of strength, who do you think the source of strength is? Think it's us. And there's this moment where it says, Rehoboam, this guy that started well, but finishes poorly, begins his downward descent in a moment that from his eyes and his position was a moment of strength. But you see this, it says when he was established and we, when he was strong, he and all of Israel with him began to abandon the ways of the Lord. Have you ever noticed that your journey with Jesus never just affects you? that when you're wholeheartedly pursuing the Lord, when you're chasing after God, it blesses your friends and your family and your coworkers and your neighbors, even if they don't know it. But that when you choose to drift, everyone and everything around you drifts with you. I believe one of the dominant lies from the pit of hell is that your journey with Jesus is just your journey with Jesus. That your spiritual journey only affects you, and there's this moment in Rehoboam's life when he felt strong and established, that he began to take his eyes off the Lord, and it says he and all of Israel with him began to abandon the law of God. Have you ever known somebody that early on in their life, they were passionate about God, on fire for the kingdom, you know, maybe if you grew up in church, this is somebody from your youth group. Maybe somebody you met in college or in your early 20s or in your 30s or 40s or 50s, depending on how old you are. But don't you think back, have you, have you ever known somebody that was just seeking first the kingdom of God, passionate about God, and then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, maybe it's their circumstances, maybe it's their disappointment, maybe it's their frustration or their pain or their grief, Much like Rehoboam, they started well, but they began to finish poorly. I was thinking this week about some of my friends, people who, in my college years and early 20s, were just chasing God. Here we are in our mid-30s, and I go, man, the cares of life, cares of success and of family and of comfort, have choked out what God is doing in them. And what used to be hot has grown cold. And for some of you, maybe that's that's your story. If you're really honest with yourself, you look back on a season, you go, man, I started so well. But but the race has slowed down. Remember several years ago, Sydney and I decided we wanted to run a race, which I don't know why we decided to do that. <laughs> Runnings from the devil. <laughs> we trained and we prepared. We tried so hard, and I remember we're there at the starting line, and we're there at the crowd, and the music, and the banners. And we decided, here's how we're gonna pace ourselves. and the gun goes off, and all strategy just went out the window. We just, we tear off, we're caught up in the the hype of it. And like 10 minutes in, I'm just like walking, holding my side. I go, man, it's not about how you start. It's how you finish. Have you ever known somebody to start well, like Rehoboam? But it finished poorly, and I was, I was asking this week, I was like, God, why? Like, how does that happen? how did it happen to him? How'd it happen to you? How's it happened to me? And there's this moment toward the end of his life, jump down to verse 13 and 14 of chapter 12, where the writer of Chronicles, he gives us this insight. Listen to this. It says, King Rehoboam established himself firmly in Jerusalem, and he continued as king He was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 17 years in Jerusalem. In other words, the first three years of his journey were marked by intimacy with God. The last 14 were marked by rebellion. Jump down to verse 14, this is what I want you to see. He says, and he did evil because he had set his heart, he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. He did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. I love this insight, the writer of Chronicles says, listen, it's not like you woke up one day and said, I wanna bring the kingdom down and I wanna bring my family down and I wanna abandon the ways of God. He says, that's not the way that happened. He says the reason he began to drift was because he had not made the decision beforehand to set his heart on seeking the Lord. I don't know if you write in your Bibles, but you should underline that word, to set. It means to like predetermine, to decide ahead of time what you will do regardless of the circumstances that will come your way. This idea of setting is this choice where you say day in and day out, I'm gonna make the choice to do that which is right as opposed to drifting into that which is easy. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're laying in bed at night and you start thinking, Should I go work out in the morning? What happens if you don't set your heart and your alarm clock (laughs) and your gym bag on what you're gonna do in the morning? Like, you know, there are a few of you that just are like self motivated and the rest of us hate you, just so you know. (laughs) But if you don't make the choice to set your heart on pursuing that which is right, In the morning when you wake up, you will drift into that which is easy, right? And that which is easy very rarely produces that which is great. To set your heart. He says Rehoboam, he ended up in the scenario he was in because he had not set his heart on seeking God, chasing God, thinking about God, Worshiping God, loving God first and foremost. And he learned the hard way that a heart that has not set itself upon seeking God first is a heart that has already put God second. And God will never inhabit the second place positions of our heart. A heart that is not set to seek is a heart that is already prone to drift. A heart that is not set to seek is a heart that is already vulnerable to sin. And the writer looks back on Rehoboam's life and he says he ended up in this place of lukewarmness, not because he wanted to be bad, but because he did not set his heart on being holy. Remember when I was a kid, I grew up surfing, and I loved surfing you have never done it. You know, one of the things that you learn very early on is you paddle out in the water, you get right beyond where the waves are breaking, you get into the lineup with everybody else that's there to surf. One of the first things that you're supposed to do is you look on the shore and you find this place to line yourself up with. You look like for a landmark. You look for a beach towel or a tree or the edge of a building. You wanna find your bearings because the water is constantly moving and the people around you are constantly moving. And you get out there and you set your eyes on something that's fixed. And I learned this very young. Like, if you don't keep paddling, you're already drifting. And this is like one of the inconvenient truths of life in the kingdom of God. That a heart that is not set on seeking, a life that is not set on pursuing that which is good is a life that is already drifting into that which is easy. And that which is easy is rarely producing that which is good. You cannot drift into spiritual intimacy with God. You can be born into a great house. You can have a great start. You have a great community around you. But at some point, you have to make the decision that above all other things, I will set my heart to seek first the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus says in one of his most famous sermons ever. Do you remember this? He says, no matter how great of a leader you think you are, no matter how good you think you are at multitasking, your heart is not capable of chasing that which is temporary and chasing that which is eternal. He said, be careful what you set your heart on, Matthew chapter 6. He says, if you set your heart on financial gain and sexual conquest and relational wholeness, in comfort and ease and security, if that's the place you set your heart first, you've already chosen to put God second. And God will not inhabit the second chair of anybody's life. Jesus says, no, you will love one master and you'll hate the other. He says, but if you want life to be marked well, by finishing well, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will fall into place. So Jesus says, Jesus says, Church, don't be scared of wholeheartedly making the decision beforehand to seek first that which matters most. He says, because when you make God your first place priority, all of your second place needs will come to you in the right time, in the right season, the way that God wants it. But a lot of us, we spend our whole lives reversing those two things, and we're frustrated why the power of God's promises are not manifesting in the context of our lives. And so here we find ourselves at kind of a new starting line. I know in some ways it's arbitrary, but just like the scriptures say, new mornings bring new mercies. New years bring new opportunities. You know, can you imagine what would happen if this group of people Said no matter what may come, hell or high water, good or bad, we will set our hearts upon seeking the Lord. No matter what anybody else is choosing, we will set our hearts on pursuing the one that matters most. I want to challenge you this week to do something that I've spent the last week doing. I wanna give you two questions that here in a few moments we're gonna wrestle with together. The first question is a question about assessment, where you reflect back on where you've been. And the second question is a question about adjustment, where you think about what you need to step into in the year ahead. And I I wanna challenge you to write these questions down, to spend some time with God this week, really wrestling them out. But the first question is this. As you look back on the, the last year, or the last season. When you're honest with yourself, did you seek God first? Was he the primary pursuit of your life? I'm not asking you if he was in the number one slot on your paper. I'm asking with your time, with your energy, with your resources, with your thoughts, with your sexuality, with your habits, It was God first in your life. It's God first. It's a question of assessment. You know, you can lie to yourself. You can lie to your friends and family. But you can't deceive God. And that's great news. And so you can come to him without pretense this morning. Say, God, let's just call this what this is. Question number one, did you seek God first as this last season? Second question is a question of adjustment. Second question, what is the one decisive step that you're going to take each day towards putting the Lord first in 2018? What's one decisive step? You know, for some of you, it will be you deciding that you are going to give the Lord the first part of every day, you're going to give him the first fruits of your time. For some of you, it's gonna be the decision that you're gonna pray more. And it's gonna be your step towards intimacy with God. For some of you, you're gonna take a step towards just getting in the word. Can you imagine what would happen if you set your heart on being in God's word every day for the rest of your life? Just like you wouldn't skip a meal. What if you said, God, I won't skip my time with you. Can you imagine the dividends that would come on that investment? For some of you, it's gonna be a step towards community or towards vulnerability, towards confession. For some of you, it's gonna be a step towards a new ministry or volunteering or opportunity. For some of you, it's gonna be a new step towards mission with your neighbors. But here's what I want you to hear, is no step towards Jesus is an insignificant step. And you give God a little and watch what he'll give you in return. We're gonna go into this next month and this is a month of preparation. We're going, God, what do you have to do so that our hearts are postured to seek you together? And then we're gonna enter into the season of chasing God down together. And here's what I want you to hear. The sum of what God will do among us communally will be directly connected to your willingness individually to do the hard work of assessing your heart and taking some steps towards God. Rehoboam did evil, because he did not set his heart on seeking the Lord. May the same not be said of us in the near to come. Let's pray together. God, I thank you. I thank you for this family. I thank you for this opportunity that we have, God, to just put our lives before you, to put our hearts before you, and to just honestly assess where we are. God, Would you speak to us with clarity about what steps to take, where you're inviting us into more? And God, would you do immeasurably more in our community than we even know how to ask you for? In the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks. Amen.